0: All right, now take your Bible and turn to John chapter 7. In verse 1. And I'll read down through verse 13. John chapter 7, verse 1. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him now the feast of the Jews the feast of booths was at hand his brothers therefore said to him depart from here and go into Judea that your disciples also may behold your works which you are doing for no one does these or no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to uh, be known publicly if you do these things show yourself to the world for not even his brothers were believing in him. Jesus therefore said to them, My time is not yet at hand, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourself. I do not go up to this feast, because my time is not yet fully come. And having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, and he himself also For then he himself also went up, not publicly, as it were, but in secret. The Jews, therefore, were seeking him at the feast and were saying, Where is he? And there was much grumbling among the multitudes concerning him. Some were saying, He is a good man. Others were saying, No. On the contrary, he leads the multitude astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we pray that you would guide us this morning. As uh, we look at this uh, portion of uh, your word, uh, we are thankful for it, and we're thankful for the revelation that you have given to us of uh, yourself and of our Savior, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for allowing us to uh, gather this morning uh, to worship you, our God, because you're worthy of worship. We love you, and we adore you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as you can see this morning, we're done with John chapter 6. We moved on here to chapter 7. It really is a new Section in the book of John. I have entitled uh, this morning's sermon, What Do You Think of Jesus? with the subtitle, Hatred of the Holy One. Because both of these are major themes that continue to unfold here in chapter uh, 7 and then into chapter 8. And when we come to chapter 7, we're going to continue to uh, or see a continual mounting opposition to Jesus, a a hatred against him that's going to begin to escalate. In in fact, the Jews' desire to murder him is probably as strong as it has ever been. Uh, The religious leaders want to kill Jesus. You see that back in chapter 5, verse 18, then here again in uh, chapter 7, verse 1, verse 19, verse 20, verse 25, chapter 8, verse 22, verse 37, verse 40, verse 59. So there is a mounting hatred towards Christ. And the truth is, there's no real rational reason to hate him. Uh, he, he was someone who did only good, someone who demonstrated the love and compassion of God towards mankind, someone who demonstrated God's mercy towards men, someone who came and spoke words that were spirit and they were life. In John chapter 6, verse 69, Peter told uh, Jesus uh, that he and the other apostles uh, would never abandon him in the midst of that mass defection there at the end of that chapter. And they said, here's the reason, because we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Right? We have come to believe and know you're the Holy One of God. It would therefore not only be reasonable to believe in God's Holy One, it would be immensely reasonable to love Him uh, with the, the entirety of one's heart and completely unreasonable to hate Him. Nevertheless, the chapter begins with those very words, after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee. He was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews uh, were seeking to kill him. And Jesus is going to tell his brothers in a few verses, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me. And again, what is it about Jesus that would cause somebody to hate him? And again, the answer is nothing. Again, least nothing on a justifiable, reasonable uh, uh, reality. In John chapter 15, verse 26, he actually says, they hated me without cause. So mankind's hatred towards the person of Jesus Christ is uncaused and it's unreasonable. But nevertheless, it is a real hatred towards the person of Jesus Christ. And as I've told you numerous times, uh, what is so offensive with Jesus uh, by the natural man or towards the natural man with regards to Jesus is not his works. It's his words. His words are always unacceptable. Look at verse 7. He says in verse 7, the world cannot hate you but it hates me here's the reason because i testify of it that its deeds are evil so the natural man the unsaved man doesn't like the words of jesus they're more than willing to embrace his works they're more willing to enjoy his miracles they're more than willing to uh, have a supernatural uh, or display of the supernatural they love that they love having their free food their bellies filled but when Jesus becomes too specific, when his words become too direct, when he testifies against the world and confronts the world in its wickedness, the crowd won't follow him. Not only will they just turn and walk away, not only will they just defect, but they'll hate him and they will call for his death. Jesus, when he spoke, he often offended people. People were offended by his words because he spoke direct words, demanding words, uh, words that were truth, but words that were difficult for people to hear words that were necessary and appropriate for the moment with the intent of awakening the dead spiritually to call them to follow him. So again, the, the issue with Jesus is not that he was not understandable. The issue with Jesus was he was too understandable. He was too explicit. It's the words of Christ and the message of the cross that is offensive to those who are perishing. Because Christ commands all allegiance to himself and the, the cross condemns every one of us. The cross condemns us all, and the cross condemns every act or every work of someone trying to earn their salvation. Christ comes and he proclaims himself as the exclusive means of eternal life. And the cross comes and proclaims us as utter failures, with absolutely no way to save ourselves, no ability to save ourselves. ourselves. The cross, therefore, defends. And the cross demands an exclusive faith in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and in him alone. So in this portion of scripture that we're starting to enter into, we're going to see an increasing hostility towards the person of Jesus Christ, as well as that question being continued to be put forward, what do you think about Jesus? What do you think about him? Now in the text that we're going to work our way through this morning, you'll see that some people thought he was a good man. However, another group of people thought he was leading people astray. Therefore, he is a deceiver. You see that down in verse 12. So the popular opinion that Jesus is a quote-unquote good man, uh, some kind of religious leader, some kind of compassionate, well-meaning individual, doesn't go far enough. It's not the truth concerning the person of Jesus Christ. And then to say, on the other hand, that he leads the multitude astray is to see to say that he is a deceiver, and that's a damnable lie from the pit of hell. So as I've said all along the, through this series of the book of John, the most important I- issue in every person's life is to come to a proper understanding of who Jesus Christ really is. And the answer that you give to that question determines your eternal destiny. It's that significant. And again, to say that he was nothing more than a good man or that he was one who leads the multitude astray, both of those are are lies. Both of those answers are wrong. C.S. Lewis said once that good men don't say that they are God. Liars and crazy people do that. Then is he a deceiver, he asks. He says, deceivers don't demonstrate the power of God. They don't raise people from the dead. They don't speak the way that Jesus spoke. And Jesus spoke the words of life. He came into the world for that express purpose, to save sinners, that people might be rescued from the reality of death that is coming, which everybody can see. You don't have to be a theologian to figure that one out. One out of one people die in this world. There's a continual train that works its way all the way to the grave, and we're all headed there. And Jesus Christ came into this world to declare the message that he and he alone has the keys to death, and he and he alone is the one who provides eternal life, that men might escape this sentence of death because of sin. And again, you can claim that you are not a sinner, but the reality is all sin, and therefore the reality is we're all under the sentence of death because of sin, sin in our lives, sin in the world religious leaders of israel they've already made up their decision about jesus they see him as a deceiver and they're going to call for his death and in this text we're going to see the power of this apostate religious system of judaism because they have this power over people that controls them verse 13 says that no one was speaking openly of him because of fear of the jews and again the jews is the religious leaders so again the most important decision that any man or woman could ever make is what are you going to do with the person of jesus christ you have to deal with him And his words lead to the knowledge of the truth. Because rightly, he claimed over and over again that he was God come in the flesh. Rightly, he proved over and over again his compassion, the mercy that he had, the the, the kindness, the love of God the Father. He he calls people to listen to his words. And those who do listen to his words uh, by faith respond accordingly, as we saw in the end of uh, John chapter 6. And they say, we're never going to leave you. There's nowhere else to go. You alone have the words of eternal life. They demonstrate their faithfulness by listening to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ and saying to him that they're not going to depart from him. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of Israel. Now, false followers, again, as we saw last time in our study of John 6, false followers will gather in a crowd. They'll follow him for a certain amount of time. They'll even throw a certain amount of accolades towards him. They'll go even as far as saying that he's a good man. But again, that falls infinitely short of the truth. And those who claim that he is anything except God incarnate, God come in the flesh, they have been deceived by the ultimate deceiver, the ultimate liar, Satan himself. In fact, the Lord Jesus Christ says that very thing. Maybe you want to turn over and look. I was just going to read, but turn over to John chapter 8. It's in verse forty. Three, but we'll pick it up in verse forty-two, John chapter eight, verse forty-two. Jesus says, verse forty-two, if God were your father, again he's talking to the religious leaders, if God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and I have come from God, for I have not even come in my own initiative, but He sent me. Verse forty-three why do you the religious leaders so-called of Israel why do you not understand what I'm saying it's because you cannot hear my word you are of the your father the devil and you want to do the desires of your father he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him whenever he speaks a, a, a lie he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies but because I speak the truth you do not believe me every claim that jesus christ is anything except god incarnate shows that people have been deceived by the ultimate deceiver himself satan and again it's always the words of jesus that cause people problems verse 47 of that chapter he who is of god hears the words of god and for this reason you do not hear them because you're not of god that that is a condemnation and a warning to listen to the truth repent from your fallenness verse 51 i say to you if any of you keeps anyone keeps my word they shall never see death and as a result of that and uh, a little more discourse on abraham verse 59 says they picked up stones to throw at him they want him dead again people didn't hate jesus for what he did they hated him for what he said it's always his words The natural man simply will just not believe what jesus says to be true and the natural man will just simply not believe what jesus says to be true about himself about his incarnation about the reality of the fact that he is the only way to be reconciled to god the father that if you want to have eternal life you have to repent turn from your sin and believe upon him alone again jesus christ is the dividing point of all human history he's the dividing point of humanity and eternal life, again, only comes to those who repent, who humble themselves under the truth of the word of God, under the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and come to Christ and to Christ alone. Jesus said back in John chapter 6, verse 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. And again, that's the premise. I, I probably mentioned it a dozen or more times through this series so far. This is why John is writing God wants to communicate. God knows how to speak. God wants to communicate. God wants you to know the truth. John 20 and 31, these things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing, by believing, you might have life in his name. God desires for men to repent and come to a knowledge of the truth, right? That's why this book is written. Go back to John chapter 7. Now, as we come to John chapter 7, there's a time gap here of about six months after the events that happened in John chapter 6. So the events in John chapter 6 took place during the Passover, as it says back up in 6 verse 4. So we're about six months or so down the road, and we're about six months away from the time where Christ will go to the cross where he'll be crucified. Verse 1, after these things, again, it's a reference to time, to this interval. So it's not just the immediate things that John spoke of in John chapter 6, the the feeding of the 5,000, the discourse that Christ gave on him being the bread of life, etc., and so forth, the defection of the masses, the great confession by uh, Peter minus Judas, right, that they would not depart because Christ alone is the one who has the words of eternal life. But there are many other events that happened in this time frame, these past few months, when Jesus was still in Galilee. Now, John doesn't... uh, Uh, record them but the other gospel writers do john chapter 6 that we saw uh, at the sea of galilee and the production of the food is probably the height of jesus's uh, public ministry when the masses turn away from him there at the end of that chapter the masses turn away from him his public ministry begins to fade away and for the most part he uh, disappears from public arena. Instead of remaining in uh, populated centers, population centers, he travels the length and the breadth of Galilee. He goes from Tyre to Sidon to the northwest uh, of Galilee to the Decapolis, a place where there are ten cities together, uh, ten cities of the, of the Gentiles, as Mark 7 tells us. It was also during this six months that he did other uh, miraculous healings. He cast out demons. He fed 4,000, as it says in Mark 15. But the focus of this six-month period of time is really him being with the 12. Him teaching the 12 extensively the truth. And probably the two greatest events that happened during this time period is number one, he begins to tell his disciples for the first time that he's going to be rejected. He's going to be rejected and he's going to die. But then he's going to rise from the dead. Matthew sixteen twenty one. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day the second great event that happens during this time period is his transfiguration matthew chapter 17 jesus takes his inner circle peter james and john to the mountain and they get a a glimpse of his glory which is important for them to see in light of the coming events that are about to unfold that are going to be very difficult for them to understand again the events of the fact that christ is going to be rejected he's going to be crucified. Uh, He's going to be executed upon a cross. So during this six-month period of time, there is an intense training of the 12. Uh, He focuses on them. He teaches them the truth uh, concerning himself, concerning the kingdom, uh, preparing them uh, for what is about to happen. Uh, And again, the fact that he's going to be arrested, he's going to be scourged and eventually murdered, but victoriously he'll rise from the dead. It's interesting that Jesus only spent two days with the 20,000. <clears throat> right who eventually um, walked a- away from him as he declared the gospel to them very quickly his words separated out again the true from the false the false followers from christ from the true. and he's going to spend the next six months predominantly in- intensely training these 12 apostles who are his true followers so after these things jesus was walking or traveling really carrying out ministry and life in galilee for he's unwilling to walk in judea meaning to conduct his ministry there because the jews the religious leaders again were constantly trying to seek to kill him now christ wasn't afraid to die was not unwilling to die that's the very reason he's coming to the world it says that in john chapter 12 verse 27 but it was not yet the time the right time in god's plan for those events to take place leading up to his death So Jesus has been gone from Judea for a year. He's been ministering in Galilee. And in that interval of time that he has been gone, the hatred for him in Judea is continuing to grow. But now it's getting very close to the time where he's going to go back into that area. Verse 2. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples may also behold your works, which you are doing, for no one does anything in secret. When he himself seeks to be known publicly, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. So the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, or perhaps in your translation it says tabernacles, was at hand. Now in Israel, there were three great feasts that the Jews celebrated uh, in, in Jerusalem every year. Every male was expected to be at the Passover, which is in the spring. Pentecost which was 50 days after the Passover and then the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles which was in the fall about five days after the Feast of Pentecost. It was on the 15th day of the seventh Jewish lunar month, a tishri which would have included our last few days of uh, September and the first few days of uh, October. So the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths uh, had uh, a couple of purposes multiple purposes it obviously looked back to remember the time where Israel wandered in the wilderness when God brought them out of uh, uh, Egypt and they lived in tents or booths uh, during the 40 years of wandering it was also an opportunity to rejoice in God's goodness and provision at the completion of the harvest season but also it was a, a, a festival uh, that um, a, a feast that looked forward uh, to the kingdom where where the kingdom is going to be brought in full, and and God would bring uh, the kingdom with all of its attendant blessings. In fact, Zechariah chapter 14, uh, (coughs) excuse me, verse 16 says, the feast is going to be celebrated in the future in the millennial kingdom, as they again look back and remember God's deliverance. It it was a week-long celebration. It was a celebration that uh, the historian Josephus says was the most joyous of all the three feasts, in fact, there was a rabbinical saying that went something along this line: that a man who had not seen the festivities of Tabernacle didn't know what Jubilee is, right? So it was a great time of rejoicing. So what people would do during this uh, festival is, is they would make little temporary shelters out of branches, just as their forefathers had did uh, when they left Egypt. And there were these little booths or little shelters everywhere. City dwellers, uh, city dwellers would build them on their roofs or their houses or in the streets or in the squares and they were just everywhere so again it was a special time of rejoicing a special time of remembrance for the jews remembering the lord remembering his care remembering his provision living in these temporary booths these temporary shelters to remind themselves how god had delivered them how god had uh taken care of them through their wilderness wanderings and allowed them to enter into the land as a nation J.C. Ryle says it was of uh, the the feast where more sacrifices were af- offered than any other Jewish sacrifices. Uh, according to one uh, writer I read, said seventy bulls were sacrificed during this feast at the temple. And at least once every seven years, the law was read in full publicly uh, to the people. There was a, ga- a great uh, candle abra that was read uh, that was lit every night, a candle lighting ceremony, if you will, that uh, commemorated God's presence with Israel and the pillar of. Uh, cloud and fire there was also a feast in which the water water was drawn from the pool of siloam every day as a remembrance of the water that came from the rock that sustained israel while we were in the wilderness and that water was brought to the temple and in a great uh, moment of solemnity that water was poured out on the altar as an offering as a sacrifice to god while the people read what do you think they read i'll tell you they read isaiah 12 ah i think i've heard that this morning That's why we read Isaiah 12. Okay, it's tremendous. You might want to look back there or you can just listen. Isaiah 12. Then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for you uh, were angry with me. Your anger is turned away. You comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation, and in that day you will say, Give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, make them remember that his name is exalted, praise the Lord in song, for he has done excellent things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Now again, you might remember that's the exact phraseology that Simon Peter used at the end of chapter 6 to describe the Lord Jesus Christ. Simon Peter answered Christ and he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Right, you are the Holy One. Now Jesus is going to play off of these two ceremonies as he invites people to come to him if they are thirsty and to drink, right? John chapter 7, verse 37, and then he's going to play off the second one in John chapter 8, verse 12, when he proclaims the fact, I am the light of the world. Nobody else may know what's going on, but he does when he arrives at this feast, right? He gets it. He read the book, right? He understands. One writer, in fact, says this, little did the Jews know How wonderfully Isaiah 12 was being fulfilled when Jesus, the Holy One, quietly arrived at the festival, hearing that song about himself, the Holy One. How wonderfully, or how truly wonderful is this great celebration, or how truly great this great celebration was when the Messiah had come. If only the Jews at the time had realized that. Yet at this time, their hatred for him was to the point where they wanted to kill him, their own Messiah. What a sad state of affairs, Right? I said earlier that the Feast of uh, Tabernacles begins five days after the Day of Atonement. Uh, uh, And uh, that's when the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies and the blood uh, was shed, the sacrifice for the sons of the people. It was a happy occasion when Israel sensed uh, that God had forgiven their sins. And looking fast forward to where we are, isn't it so much greater, so much happier for us to realize that our sins have been forgiven because our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, Didn't go in with the blood of bulls and goats, but he went in with his own blood. He offered himself as the perfect sacrifice for that once for all time sacrifice for our sin. The writer of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 9, says But when Christ appeared as the high priest uh, of good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not to say uh, of this creation, and not through the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and uh, of goats and bulls and ashes of heifers sprinkling uh, those things have been defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from the dead from dead works to serve a living God? It is a tremendous day to say, Lord, you were angry with me, but you have turned away your anger, and God has turned His way His anger away from us through his son the holy one the lord jesus christ amen what a tremendous truth what a tremendous celebration this would have been if people would have realized who is there now from our perspective uh, on this side of the cross the passover looks back obviously and it pictures the lord jesus christ in his death for our sins as the passover lamb Uh, uh, pentecost foreshadows the outpouring of the of the holy spirit in acts chapter 2 and then the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths, again, is a picture of Christ coming again. I think we we sung that this morning, amen? Right, he's coming again. He's going to gather for himself a harvest of people to bless his people, to permanently dwell with them, and then to permanently proclaim jubilee, a time of celebration throughout the entire earth. Now, here in John chapter 7, these first few verses, these uh, first 13 verses kind of set the stage that it were for what's coming next in chapter 7 and chapter 8. But they also begin to reveal for us, again, the wrong view the people had concerning the person of uh, Jesus. And again, your salvation depends upon you having a right view of him. Your salvation depends upon you understanding who Jesus Christ really is. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of Booth was at hand, verse 3, and his brothers therefore said to him, now you might be surprised but historically amongst the commentators there has been quite a bit of discussion and disagreement over who his brothers or if you've got the authorized version his brethren actually were. And throughout the years there have been all kinds of different opinions put forth for a variety of different reasons on who these people might be from near <coughs> excuse me, near kinsmen to cousins to other disciples other followers of Christ. I might suggest to you uh, because I'm a kind of a simple guy, that the uh, way to probably take this is just simply of uh, the way it says, uh, his brothers. And again, if you have uh, the King James, it says brethren. I'll give you a modern translation. It means brothers. So we'll just take it as it says, right? We won't get crazy or whatever. It's just very simply to say it says what it means, his brothers. Guess what? Mary oh. and Joseph had other sons after the birth of Jesus. Now, I understand probably this is one of the reasons historically it's been a point of contention because the Catholic Church believes, and wrongly, the Catholic Church believes that Mary was a perpetual virgin. The Bible, on the other hand, which is a good source of information to turn to if you're looking for the truth, the Bible, on the other hand, gives evidence to the contrary. Matthew 13, verse 55 lists their names. James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas or Jude. Now, the brothers here don't believe him in, at the moment, as we see in verse 5, but they will come to believe in him in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. Two of the brothers, uh, James and Jude, would pen epistles that would bear their name, and James, uh, he who uh, Jesus appeared to after the resurrection, according to 1 Corinthians fifteen seven, he becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So now his brothers come, and they offer to Jesus some unsolicited advice. Verse 3, his brothers therefore said to him, depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may behold your works, which you are doing. Verse 4, for no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now, we can't be uh, exactly um, sure what the motivation is behind the words here, behind their comments. Some believe they were being sarcastic. They were sarcastically ridiculing Jesus. Oh, you think you're something, huh? So you want to be famous, so why don't, you go to fame? why don't you go to a big city? Why don't you go to Jerusalem? Why don't you go there, do some miracles, and then you'll hit the big time? That's a certain group of people. There's another group of people who say, well, maybe they were motivated by family shame. I mean, again, our big brother was at first time, he was popular, but now he's losing disciples, and maybe if he goes back up to the feast, to the Jerusalem, there's a lot of people there, maybe he'll gain back some of his disciples and maybe save the family name. Another group of people come alongside, come alongside and say, well, no, you know, they're really embarrassed by him. They're embarrassed by his uh, claims, his strange claims, that people had to eat his flesh and drink his blood if they were going to have eternal life. So go up there and redeem yourself. There's another group of people who say, there's a lot of people who've got a lot of opinions, right? There's another group of people who come along and say, well, they gave some advice. It was sincere advice, but it was worldly advice. Look, if you want to make your messianic claims known, you need to prove yourself. To the religious authorities at Jerusalem, go up to the capital city. Now, again, we don't know the exact motivation behind the comments that the brothers make. We do know for certain that they're not zealous for him to show his glory because again they don't believe in him as that kind of a messiah, according to verse 5. (coughs) Some have suggested perhaps there's another, even maybe dual motivation for their words. Perhaps they want to see another sideshow, perhaps they want to see Jesus perform some miracle so they could again continue to think about this thing and decide for themselves whether or not his works are genuine. I don't know. That's just another line of of thought. Perhaps they were amongst a group of people who uh, thought uh, that when Messiah came, he'd be a political Messiah, just like the crowd believed back in uh, John chapter 6. They were thinking maybe if he was really the The Messiah that he'd go to Jerusalem he'd go to the political center of Israel uh, he'd go before the ruling authorities and the ruling authorities they put their stamp of authenticity upon him uh, not by ministering out in some backwoods places like in in Galilee but again go go to the big cities where people can see you his brothers therefore said to him depart from here go into Judea that your disciples also may behold your works which you are doing so again we don't know now verse 4 would make some sense from a worldly perspective that again if the brothers believed he was some kind of political messiah he probably should do a better job marketing himself right a better job in marketing himself he can't be in the backwoods you got to go to the big city verse four for no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly if you do these things show yourself to the world so again the brothers remark here in verse four as numerous commentators have noted is not too far off of the same temptation that satan gave to jesus to jump off the pinnacle of the temple right let jump off the pinnacle of the temple let the angel safely carry you to the ground and everybody <coughs> will see they'll be astonished and they'll follow you as the son of god back in the mark or Matthew chapter four i mean you can just hear the echo of satan's challenges in, in their statement if you do these things show yourself to the world Satan, again, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 6, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. It is written, he'll give angels charge concerning you, and on their hands he'll bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Now, it's interesting in Matthew 4 that the word if there is known in in, in the language as a first-class condition. That means it's an indicative, it's a statement of fact, it's not subjunctive. What does that mean? It means this, there's no doubt in Satan's mind he knows who Jesus is. So in in chapter 4, it could be very easily translated, since you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, right? It's the same kind of a challenge. Since you're the Son of God, put on a display. Do something spectacular so that you can draw attention to yourself. Again, his brothers, get out of the backwoods, go to the big city, right? You can't market, you can't sell yourself or your product if people don't know about it. But again, this wisdom that the brothers are giving is satanic wisdom. It's worldly wisdom. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, or since you do these things, show yourself to the world. Again, they weren't even necessarily arguing against the fact that he did the miracles, but they don't believe upon him as the Savior, their Savior, to save their souls. They do not realize that the miracles that he had performed were an affirmation of the fact that that's indeed who he is. He's God's Son. Nobody raises people from the dead. Nobody gives sight to the blind. Try to take that to your fake um, uh, healing ministry that some joker who doesn't have the power, who claims to have the power to heal people's uh, um, diseases, take your blind relative and say, give them sight. I guarantee you they won't let you in the building. If they let you in the building, they won't let you in line because they don't have that kind of power. Jesus had that kind of power. Jesus pretty much distinguished himself as the most unique person who ever walked the planet. Unbelief in him is ridiculous. And again, as I mentioned to you before, uh, the reality of his miracles were so numerous that nobody ever dared say he didn't do these things. The religious leaders came to the false conclusion because their father is the father of lies that he did things that he did by the power of Beelzebub, which is, again, a ridiculous uh, 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 acclamation or or, uh, uh, affirmation. Prove yourself, go to Jerusalem. Do something spectacular. Put on a put on a bigger show. Hey, you put on a pretty good show there at the Sea of Galilee, put on a bigger show at a bigger city. And then everybody will believe. A- at best, the advice from the brothers is a marketing strategy. If you do this, people will come to your church and you can have a big church. Well, maybe I don't want a big church. Maybe we don't want a big church. Maybe we just want the church that God calls to the building. Huh? Lots of people willing to put on a dog and pony show to attract a crowd. And I've told you and I've told the elders from day one, I can attract the entire city of Zenia to this building in one Sunday morning. Absolutely guarantee you. All we have to do is let the, light the building on fire and just stand back and watch it burn, burn. The entire city will come to watch it. And then we have accomplished our goal to attract the entire city. If that's what our goal was. That wasn't Jesus' goal. It's interesting that he spends two days with the twenty. The 20,000, he spends three years and intensely six months with uh, 12 because he wants to teach them the truth. I think if you were to look at the life of Jesus, you'd see something to say there for the discipling ministry of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and the discipling, how making disciples, I think I read that somewhere towards the end of the book of Matthew, the 28th chapter, where he says something about making disciples. To make disciples, you've got to have life on life. You've got to spend time. The worldly marketing strategy of the brothers is if you are so important, go to the big city. If you do these things. It really foreshadows the mocking that the Lord Jesus Christ himself will receive when he's on the cross in Matthew chapter 27, verse 40. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. Right? Prove yourself. He's already proved himself. Proof isn't the issue. It's the hardness of mankind's heart. So Jesus' brothers are not giving him godly advice. Because Jesus' brothers have completely misunderstood who he is, why he's coming to the world. Again, verse 5, John tells us that. For not even his brothers were believing in him. Right? Jesus has just told us in chapter 6 what it really means to, to believe upon him. you got to eat his flesh. you got to drink his blood. Obviously, metaphorically, spiritually. You've got to take him in completely. You've got to assimilate him. you, you got to commit the welfare of your soul entirely to him. And like most of those in chapter 6 who only followed him for a little while, even his own brothers wouldn't follow him. Even his own brothers wouldn't believe upon him like that. It is somewhat of an amazing reality that these gentlemen grew up in the the very same household as Jesus. They lived in close proximity to him, and yet they were still unbelievers. They were lost. Now many commentators come at this point, and they suggest, well, how difficult it must have been to live with a brother who never sinned i don't know never lived in that environment before neither of us any of us maybe they resented him because of his sinless life because he was a conviction of the uh, uh, of them and their own sin i guess that's possible but no doubt somewhere along the line they heard his teaching and no doubt i would suggest to you they saw his miraculous power they saw his compassion and yet they still chose not to believe they still would not believe And it would actually take the physical resurrection of their brother from the dead to finally persuade them that he was the son of God. That's Acts chapter 1, verse 14. Many commentators come and say, well, you can grow up in a Christian home and go to church every week and know a lot about Jesus, but not personally believe in him as your Lord and Savior. And that's true. There's a lot of people who do that. Grow up in Christian homes, get told all the stories. Go to church, forced to all their life. Maybe even come for a little while of their own free will but then at some point they flee the savior because they have come to find out that their religious system not jesus they get this all confused it's their religious system that doesn't work they were religious but they didn't know christ and the reason they left him is they never knew him in the first place it's the religious system they have built that they are rejecting when they depart from the Savior because the Savior is the only one who has the words of eternal life and people who are truly saved will not depart from him. When people, when you, when your children grow up and they leave your home and they depart from the truth, they never came to the truth. It doesn't mean there's not opportunity as long as they have breath to still come back to the truth and we need to be proclaiming the truth just as we did uh, in, in our homes. But when you have children in your home, you want to make sure that you are making followers of Christ, not Pharisees not rule keepers and again when i first moved to this area there was a lot of people i knew it was a very popular thing to baptize kids when they were two or three years old and say well they got baptized when they're two so now now we know we're saved. they're saved it's like that's not my methodology i don't see that in the bible anywhere the only way that i can tell if anybody's saved is to watch the pattern of their life so to those brothers who meant well i'm sure ask me when do i know that my kids are saved i always say i went there 37 to which they would gasp because they just baptized their kid at two or three or something It's like, well, I I need to see my son or my daughter out of my home. I need to see them living life on their own. Then I can give you a pretty good indication of where their hearts are because I can't look into their hearts. While they're in my home, they're compliant. I'm interested in compliance, but not as much as I'm interested in transformation of heart. That's what I need to see. And that's what we need to continue to proclaim to our children even when they're outside of our homes. The need for a transformation, not religion we all just got to fast forward and get to the point where we all agree us and our kids adult religion doesn't work okay let's go back to the person of jesus christ who is jesus christ most important did i say that already jesus christ the most who is he the most important question that you have to come to an answer to and you need to come to a proper answer a right answer and again the only place you're going to find that answer is in the bible so here you got these guys they don't know they grew, they grew up with him they don't know who he is Ryle says we should learn from verses like this that the desperate hardness of a man's heart and the absolute necessity of grace uh, to make anyone a disciple with the extreme danger of familiarity with high spiritual privileges. We should remember, too, that a man may be truly uh, good and a holy man and yet not have converted relatives. No one can give grace to his own family. That's the truth. A prophet is not without honor in his own country, as it says in Mark 6. Even our Lord was not believed on by all around him. He can truly sympathize with all of his people who are in similar situations, and he can. Right? Lord Jesus Christ understands our struggle. We don't give grace to our children. We just need to keep pointing them to the truth. Okay? How long do you do that? Until you quit taking a breath in. That's how long. Again, if you're an adult and you came to faith in Christ later in life, the day before you came to faith in Christ, you thought all this stuff was nonsense. Something happened, and now you started to believe. It's the same thing with your children. As long as you have breath and they have breath, you keep proclaiming the person of Jesus Christ, keep begging them to repentance, keep begging them to look at the Bible, see what the Bible says about Christ, and understand who he is. We, we'll all get to the place we agree we're going to get rid of religion, our religiosity, even our Christian religiosity, we want to get to the person of Christ. Right? So in response to this challenge that the brothers give to Jesus to uh, go up in Jerusalem, Jesus says this, uh, you know, or do the, the brothers say, Depart from here, go, depart from Galilee, go into Judea, show yourself? Jesus, verse 6. Therefore said to them, My time is not at hand yet, but yours is always opportune. My time is not yet at hand. My time is not yet come. Uh, my time is not yet here. So, what does that mean? It, it means he's not going to let his brothers manipulate him, he's not going to let their skepticism or their worldly influence dictate his actions. Because everything that Jesus did was according to the will of the Father. Everything that Jesus did was on a divine timetable. Determined again by the Sovereign Father who is orchestrating every event in his life. Everything that happened in Jesus' life, in his earthly ministry, happened according to the Father's preordained plan. And Jesus is not going to take a step that is not in harmony with the plan of the Father. It's very similar, this whole discussion is very similar to the discussion that his mother had with him at the wedding at Cana where he says, look, it's not my time yet. My hour has not yet come, John chapter 2. So he's going to reject the pressure from his family to reveal himself prematurely. He's not going to manifest himself in Jerusalem before the right time, and the right time is the time chosen by the Father. So again, the Lord Jesus is working on a divine timetable. He's working to present himself publicly in Jerusalem, that's true, but not at the Feast of Booths, Again, the presentations are going to come six months down the road at the Feast of the Passover. The feast is coming in the spring where he'll enter into Jerusalem and publicly and openly declare himself to be the Messiah and then offer himself as the sufferer. He'll die a vicarious or substitutionary propitiatory death upon Calvary's cross. Jesus therefore said to them, my time is not yet at hand. Again, everything I do is in harmony, conformity with God the Father's plan his eternal plan his eternal timetable but your time is always opportune your time is always ready what is he what he's saying is basically it doesn't matter when you go up right you, you can go up any anytime you choose since there's no eternal divine significance in your plans that you're making for your own life right for a, a part of the un, unbelieving world they really have no concern with the will of god or the concern or the the timetable uh, of god in, in their lives doesn't matter when you go up. Right, you can go up anytime you want. Verse seven, he says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Right, the world cannot hate you. Again, Jesus' brothers were in no threat from the uh, from the religious uh, leaders, the religious authorities in their own life. The Jewish uh, authorities weren't seeking to kill them as they were Jesus. The world cannot hate you. Why can the world not hate you? Because they're still part of the world. They're still part of Satan's kingdom. They still love the world that is opposed to Christ. The world cannot hate you, but the world hates me. And here's why. Because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Again, this is why the Jewish religious leaders hated Christ and wanted him dead. It's what he said. It's his words. He told them the truth. First John 5 and 19 says, We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world, including the false religious system of Judaism, that is not <clears throat> that is actually keeping people from Christ, that is keeping people away from salvation, the one that was constantly in conflict with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, that part of the world system is under the power of the evil one. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one, including this false religious system. <clears throat> you might remember back in chapter 2, Jesus went to the temple, right? And he made a public... Statement at the beginning of his, <coughs> excuse me, the beginning of his ministry. He goes into the temple. He turns over the tables of the of the money changers who was making his father's house a house of merchandise or a den of thieves. He takes a, a skirt, a, a court of uh, of uh, a cords, a scourge of cords and he drives everybody out of the temple. Right to say this is a holy place. And they hated him for the, for that. They hated him. They refused to believe upon him. They wanted him dead. He's a threat to their entire system. He's a threat to their, to their income. He's a threat to their power that they have. And they wanted to keep over the people whom they controlled through fear. Again, verse 13. The world can't hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it, that its deeds are evil. So again, it's the words of Christ. He spoke the truth. He testified to the evil deeds of the world system. again the most perfect pure kind individual has ever walked the planet and the world hated him the religious hated religious leaders hated him they hated him because he spoke the truth he spoke the truth and their deeds were evil therefore they hated him now again not only the religious leaders but it's all men right all men who don't know christ someone has said the natural man thinks he loves truth purity justice kindness and goodness boy don't you hear a lot about that in our, in our world we're so into justice long as we define it the natural man thinks he loves truth purity justice kindness goodness but when the paragon of all the virtue jesus christ came to the earth they hated him they killed him because he was a living witness against all their wickedness and all the wickedness in their own lives that's still true today is it not We're into all these so-called virtues as long as, again, the world defines them. When the person of truth steps into the room and declares the truth, the world hates him. Another has said, many today do not believe in Christ. In fact, they hate him because to do so would mean the end of their plans, their prestige, their control over their own lives. They like the lives they have and they don't want to face the truth that they are rebels against the Holy One of God. That's the truth. That's reality. And as the world and the culture around us continues to collapse, as the truth finds no place, there's going to be more and more hostility directed towards us. You had better believe that. And you had better be preparing for that. Prepare for that. Expect it's going to come. I'm not some tea leaf reader. I'm not speaking speculation. I'm speaking truth. And speaking the word of Christ, John fifteen nineteen, If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Paul, 2 Timothy 3 and 12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, Do you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus? Well, this is what you signed up for all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted but evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse deceiving and being deceived we are just entering into that here into the west prepare your hearts love the Lord Jesus Christ commit yourself to follow him we're not going anywhere else because you alone have the words of life Amen? There's nowhere else to go. J.C. Riles offers uh, this advice. He says, true Christians must never be surprised if they're hated like the Lord. The disciple is not above his master, as it says in Matthew 10. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you, as it says in 1 John 3. The fact, the more like Christ they are, the more likely they are to be hated. Moreover, they must not be cast down and must make themselves... Uh, they must not be cast down and make themselves miserable under the idea that there is their inconsistencies the world hates and if they were more cons- uh, consistent and lovely uh, in-, in the life of the world then the world would like them better this he says is a complete mistake and a common delusion of the devil what the world hates about christians is neither their doctrines nor their faults but their holy lives Their lives are constant testimony against the world, which makes the men of this world feel uncomfortable, and therefore the world hates them, end quote. Now, no doubt our lives do stand out as a testimony, at least they should stand out as a testimony against the world and their sin, but it's also the word. It's the word of truth. It's the word of Christ, the word of truth, it's the word of the cross that is offensive to those who are perishing so it's doctrinal truth, doctrinal clarity the world will not tolerate. We can all get along and have a religious gathering as long as we don't become too specific on what we agree on. right? If we can have the lowest common denominator, then we can get along. But when we start becoming specific, people object to that because they object to, uh, they object to truth. Raoul goes on and he says, let us note that unpopularity among men is no proof that the Christian is wrong, either in faith or practice. The common notion of many... That it is a good sign of a person's character to be well spoken of by everyone is a great error. When we see how our Lord was regarded by the wicked in the worldly of his day, we may well conclude that it is a very poor compliment to be told we are liked by everybody. There can be surely very little witness about our lives, if even the wicked like us. Woe unto you when all men speak well of you. Luke 6 and 26. He says that sentence is too much forgotten. Now that's an accurate statement and an astute observation, but we have to make sure that we on a personal level are are not intentionally unlikable, that we on a personal level are not uh, too difficult to get along with because the message of the cross is difficult enough for the unbeliever, right? The message of the cross is difficult enough for the unbeliever to accept. We are called to be ambassadors of the gospel of grace. We are called to be ambassadors of the gospel of grace we still live in the age of grace this is not the day of judgment and condemnation god is still offering to men freely through christ forgiveness of sin for those who repent and believe upon him we are ambassadors of that great good news and we have to remember that and as we represent christ and represent him well in the world you are the salt and you are the light and that is the light of the truth that we have to proclaim judgment is coming god will take care of that we should warn people of that but we are to be the proclaimers heralds of the ambassador of the gospel of grace verse 8 go up to the the feast yourself i do not go up to this feast because my time is not fully yet come verse 9 having said these things to them he stayed in galilee so the brothers say go up and then he says i'm not going to go he refused to go with them. Again, it wasn't the time for him to present himself publicly. The religious leaders were looking for him. They still want to kill him. Now, history tells us the time that the boy people would travel up to the feast is that it probably would have been a huge caravan of people who had made this journey together, which, again, a public caravan, a public journey, would have perhaps risked this overexposure on a public level. I and mean, then Again, maybe some people would come and try to make him by uh, king by force as they wanted to do back in chapter 6 perhaps this kind of great public spectacle would trigger a premature triumphal entry uh, by by the populace either way he would he he would have sparked a confrontation with the Jewish religious authorities before the proper time which would have resulted in his early death his his improper timing of his death which again is going to be in the spring at the passover verse 10 but when his brothers had gone up to the feast when he himself or when the, his brothers had gone up to the feast then he himself went up not publicly as it were but in secret so after the brothers left jesus also goes up to the feast not in a large caravan again to uh, avoid this unnecessary public uh, fanfare and attention right you go up to the feast right I, my night, my time has not fully come so he stays in galilee and then the brothers leave and then he goes up now, there are some commentators, and I understand this, some people, some people always see conflict when there's no conflict. There's no conflict between those two portions of Scripture. Richard Phillips says some people see conflict between Jesus and his words and his actions. But John explains only Jesus was unwilling to go to the feast, openly to pursuit of glory, as a jew he had the duty to appear in jerusalem for the event he did not go up feasting as one who had been brought or brought in the harvest instead he went up secretly as one who is preparing to bear the cross for the sins of the world right so there's no conflict here i'm not going with you fellows you go he didn't say i'm not going period he just said i'm not going with you fellows right so they left they took the caravan and he comes secretly by himself verse 11 the jews therefore were seeking him at the feast saying where is he They're looking for this guy, right? They know he's got to come. He's not in the crowd. Again, the Jews are are the religious leaders. Now, the last time that Jesus was in Jerusalem was back in John chapter five, at another feast. That's when he healed the lame man there at the pool of Bethesda. Again, chapter uh, five, verse eighteen says, "For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was breaking." not only breaking the Sabbath, but he's also calling God his father, making himself equal to God. So again, he's been gone for a year and the Jews still hate him. The Jews, therefore, were seeking to kill him at the feast. The religious leaders, right? They they knew he would be there because the law required for him to be there, but they couldn't find him. Where is he? And in the Greek, it's really, it's really literally that one. Where is that one? It's said with a tone of... Uh, disdain where is that one right they can't find him verse 14 says he doesn't show up till the middle of the week so again why did they hate him they hated him because of his words spoke the truth they didn't like that they didn't like when he said uh, that he was the son of god they didn't like it when he said that he was from heaven they didn't like it when he said that he was the bread from heaven they didn't like it when he said he was the only one that could give eternal life to men they didn't like it when he said, you've got to eat my flesh and, and uh, drink my blood, and I'm going to give my flesh for the life of the world. They didn't want that. They didn't accept it. They didn't like what he said. They certainly didn't like it when he said that he, te- that he testifies against them and their sin and that their deeds are evil. It's interesting that Jesus wasn't really interested about attracting a crowd. He was interested about the truth. He never compromised the truth. One writer says this, with the fear of man in the fall, we have a need to be accepted and loved by people. Therefore, we tend to shy away from boldness that Christ had. Christ didn't give any concern about being light. He never compromised the truth. He never shied away from the truth. He never backed into a corner like some kind of, you know, whimpering, maybe maybe i shouldn't say this because people will get offended you know why because he spoke the truth he's a truth teller he spoke the truth because the stakes are too great the eternal salvations of men's souls and time is too short time is short eternity is coming one day the age of grace is going to come to an end and one day your life is going to come to an end for all those who reject the mercy of god through the person of the lord jesus christ you'll stand facing judgment unless you repent And that's the truth. And that's said graciously and kindly. And Again, I told you earlier that Jesus sometimes said words that were shocking to awaken the dead from their slumber. To listen to the truth. And again, you walk from this room, this room, the room in the back, whoever's watching on the internet, you're still going to have to deal with the issue of who do you think Jesus Christ is, and you're going to have to deal with that question. You can't hide from that. It is the question of all questions. It demands an answer, and every knee will at one day give an answer because every knee at one point will bow before the person of the Lord Jesus Christ because that's who he is. Some will bow and have eternity in the presence of God and Christ. Some will bow and head off to eternal judgment. That's the truth. Jesus spoke the truth. He never compromised the truth. He never shied away from the truth because the stakes were too great. The Jews were seeking him at the feast, and they were saying, where is he? Where is that one? Now at the feast, there's a great deal of discussion concerning him. People are talking about him, verse 12. There was much grumbling, much murmuring, muttering among the multitudes concerning him. Some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, well, no, on the contrary, he leads the multitude astray. Much confusion over the person of Jesus Christ and again the multitudes are divided into two camps listen both camps two camps both camps which are wrong right Not we all can't be wrong oh yes you can 100 billion people whatever the number is you know believe in or 100 million people whatever the number is believe in Roman Catholicism we can't all be wrong oh yeah you can and all the people in, 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 un, un, united in whatever false religious system they can all be wrong too because there's only one source of truth there's only one person of truth there's only one person he said i am the way the truth and the life and nobody comes to the father but through me it is an exclusive message it is a very very narrow gate the demands it's either true or it's false right it's either true or it's false they're confused him. both camps and the multitude are, are, are wrong there's those saying he's a good man which is true but that statement doesn't go far enough And listen, only believing that Jesus was a good man is the one thing that Jesus most certainly cannot be. He cannot just be a good man. Why is that? It's his words, okay? It's always his words. It's what he said. Paraphrasing John Stott in his book Basic Christianity, one commentator puts it like this, that if Jesus was not God in human flesh, his claims would have meant he was not a good man but a very self-centered man. He was always talking about himself and telling people they should believe in him as the only way to eternal life. He claimed that the Old Testament was written about him. He claimed to be the bread of life who could satisfy the hunger of all who come to him. He claimed that whoever believes in him would have rivers of living water flowing from his innermost being. He claimed to be the light of the world. He claimed that before Abraham was born, he existed. No good man who is not God in human flesh could say such things without being considered a deluded megalomaniac. Jesus being a good man is one category you cannot put him in, a good man alone. Among the multitudes concerning him, some were saying he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the multitudes astray. These are the traditionalists. These are the people who who thought the ways of the Father uh, were good enough, right? If Jesus was a deceiver, then he's a pretty good deceiver. He got a number of people who are fiercely monotheistic to choose to believe in him to be God and to the extent that many eventually suffered persecution and martyrdom because of their following him, their belief in him. One writer says that if he was a deceiver, he would have been a very evil deceiver. Because if he deliberately led people to believe in him, knowing that all the time that he was not the true way of eternal life, he condemned those to a godless eternity. Nothing could be worse than than knowingly to deceive people with regard to their eternal destiny. Among the multitudes concerning him, some were saying he's a good man, others were saying no, on the contrary, he leads the multitude astray. Again, both groups are in error. And both errors is going to result in people still being under God's divine condemnation. Both groups of individuals failed to believe the truth that Jesus is, Jesus was, the Christ, the Son of the living God, their only hope for forgiveness of sin and eternal life. And again, the actual truth about the kind of person that Jesus is, Jesus was, remains to be, is found in the Bible. It's what the Bible teaches about the person of Jesus Christ. One writer asked this, what kind of mere man heals People's diseases give sight to the blind against something no one else can do or ever has done. Opens deaf ears, brings dead people back to life. Certainly not a deceiver, but not merely a good man either. Only a man whose God in human flesh could ever do such wonderful things for his fellow men. What kind of man reforms lives ruined by sin and brings mankind to a better state of being? Only the God-man. Amen? It's only the God-man, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, the question of all questions remains who do you think jesus is what do you think about the person of jesus and again your answer to that question determines the eternal, eternal destiny of your soul verse 13 says yet no one was speaking openly of him preferred the jews i mean the jewish religious leaders rejected jesus they they, they wanted him dead they're him was a deceiver but again the deceiver a deceiver doesn't come and perform the supernatural compassionate, authenticating miracles that jesus performed now, at this point, the Sanhedrin, the, the, the Supreme Court of uh, Judaism, had not rendered a formal judgment regarding Jesus. So the people are very careful because of their fear. They're very careful in their words. They're not speaking for him. They're not speaking against him. They're kind of waiting to hear the official response from the Jewish religious leaders. Right? They, don't want to make, they want to make sure they, they, they don't go too far. They're murmuring, right? They want to make sure they don't go far and say something in the open they shouldn't say because they know that the Jewish religious leaders are going to bring judgment upon them. The consequences of doing so, they don't want a part of. No one was speaking openly of him because of the fear of the Jews. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man brings a snare. Again, the question of the hour is, What do you think about Jesus? What will you do with him? Again, your eternal destiny depends upon your answer to that question. And again, there is absolutely, I I hate to tell you this, and I don't hate to tell you this, but there's no place for neutrality. You think you can just slide through life and take a pass on this question, you are fooling yourself, you are showing the fact that you have been deceived by the deceiver of all deceivers. Jesus Christ says, he who is not with me is against me. Jesus Christ through a line in the sand says there it is he who is not with me is against me jesus christ said whoever shall deny me before men i will also deny him before my father who is in heaven jesus christ draws a line in the sand saying you got to make a decision god in his kindness has allowed you to hear the truth the grace the mercy of god over and over again and if unto this day you have not repented and placed your faith in Christ, you, my friends, are an absolute fool. You are giving tangible evidence of Satan's active activity in your life, deluding you to not believe the truth of the kindness of God through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Amen. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for this look into your word and thankful for the kindness, the grace, the mercy you show us through Christ. Thank you for this continual study that continues to point all men to the Savior, and I pray, Lord, that we who know him will rejoice and increase in our love for you are God and Christ our Savior and for those who don't that this might be the day that they would repent and place their faith in him. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.